We're asking as a church a question, and I invite, you to, I invite you to ask the question with me, how should we worship? And a lot of, a lot of the questions that we, that we need to ask, we don't generally ask because we grow up doing what we've called worship and assuming that it's obvious what worship is. And of course, why do we even need to ask this question? And, uh, and yet, answering this question, of course, isn't just a matter of a few very obvious proof texts. We go to a verse, verse and chapter in Scripture, and it says, this is worship, and this is how you worship. There's no verse like that in Scripture, ultimately, that says that. Um, how do we answer the question, how do we worship? Well, you, you can't just find a single verse that says it, and, and boom, you're done. Neither is it a matter of, well, you worship however is culturally relevant. However, we'll, we'll jive with the times in which we live. That's not, as we'll see, a biblical way to approach that question. Neither is it personal preference. Maybe, you're, maybe you have a personal preference that doesn't jive with the culture at all, but it's your personal preference. Is that then how we should worship according to our personal preferences? As, as I might quote later on, that is tyranny. To be, to be tyrannized by people's personal preferences is a disaster. Um, no matter what they are, you, you know, um, I don't want to be tyrannized by your personal preferences, right? <laughs> then you don't want to be tyrannized by mine. Uh, now, can we, can we be tyrannized by God's preferences? No, that's not tyranny. That's just goodness. So, neither do we answer the question, how should we worship, by appealing to tradition. Well, this is the traditional way, and so it has the weight of 30 years. <laughs> that's the, for some churches, that's their tradition, right? For this church, uh, we maybe have 20 years of tradition. Or if you reach out into a broader perspective, you might have 100, 200 500 years of tradition since the Reformation, or even longer. But is, that, is any of that enough to tell us how we should worship? If you want to answer the question how we should worship, that requires a very carefully worked out biblical theology of worship. So I want to invite you, and this is a genuine invitation, to work out for yourself. Don't, don't sit here waiting for me to tell you and then you decide if you agree or disagree, right? But you, you work it out. How you and how we should worship. And I want to invite you to own for yourself, to own it. So you, you can tell me, you can tell anyone you want, hey, I've got a biblical theology of worship. So that from that foundation, what's the point of a biblical theology of worship? so that you can do the concrete work of application on your own. I was going to say by yourself, but we never really want to do things by ourselves. Um, so, the point of this series, why am I doing this series? Well, it is first of all to change us. It's to convict you and me, and to bring us the joy of seeing God more truly glorified in us in the way we approach this time. We, we, I mean, okay, we come to church every Sunday, but how do we come? What's our mentality? What do we think we're coming here to do? What is this? And, and, and if we don't have a theology of worship, we can never get in our cars, drive, park in the parking lot, walk in the door, come up here and sit down and engage in this time the way that we ought and the way that will be the most glorifying to God and the most satisfying to us. There's a secondary reason I'm going through this series, and that is to help us know why we do what we do. Several of you said that to me last Sunday, and I, and I was excited about that, because, brothers and sisters, if we don't know why we do what we do, when you leave this church, should a move take you away or something, um, you're... You, you might not know, okay, well, should I look for a church that feels comfortable because it feels like the last church I came from? 
Uh, you might go to another church and, and maybe they're doing things differently and you won't know how to evaluate what is it that's biblical. So, so what, a lot of what happens in the church and, and why any church can go astray, not just in this area, but in any area of doctrine or of practice, is that they never knew why they were doing what they were doing. And because they didn't know why they were doing what they were doing, when change was introduced, they didn't know how to judge it, how to evaluate it. And so this is so, so important. Even, I mean, we need to know why at Living Word we do things the way we do them. And it ought not to be fundamentally a matter of personal preference, cultural relevance, or tradition. So... Let me review briefly. I told you that I missed something last week. We're going to start right off with that. Last week we saw that worship is everything that you as a creature owe to God, your creator. And you owe it uniquely and exclusively to him and to no other. But then we also saw that there's a need to distinguish, to make a separation between internal worship, and which, which should be all of life. Internal worship is the heart thing that, that just says, hey, when I go to work, I'm worshiping, right? Because I'm doing my work unto God's glory. And then there's also external worship, which is not without heart. We ought, I mean, external worship, if it's, if it's purely external with no heart, it's worthless. But there is external worship which is restricted to specific forms and specific activities. So we saw last week that we must reject this egalitarian spirit of the age. And we must carefully distinguish between the common And by common, we mean uh, things that are, it's common to all of life. It's common to all of life. That's internal worship. Internal worship is common. External worship is holy. It's separate from the rest of life. If we cannot, if we don't get that distinction, we're in deep, deep, Trouble. Deep trouble. In the category of internal worship, as we said, work is worship. But in the category of external worship, work is not worship. It is not. And we saw that last week. Work is not in and of itself intrinsically an act of worship. Prayer is, in and of itself, an act of worship. Now, here's where I get to something I want to add. External worship may be engaged in, we said, at any number of different places or times. The confession, the Baptist confession, mentions in private families. So at home, you could engage in external worship. Uh, It says, in secret, each one by himself. So let's read these, and you look at these verses. I'm going to draw something from these verses that I didn't last week. But let's look at Matthew 6, 6 again. Jesus says, but you, when you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We read in Acts 10, and I could have chosen many other examples, but here's just three more. Acts 10, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Are you already convicted? This is already convicting. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius said, Four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. The ninth hour is the hour of prayer. And, and we could say, oh, it's the new covenant. We don't care about hours of prayer. 
Well, it was the new covenant when Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. So they didn't think that that was all that was all out the window now. Special hours of prayer. Acts twenty one. When our days were ended, we left. We started on our journey, and while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we went were out of the city, and kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. You understand they said farewell after they prayed, right? So this private worship, this private external worship, whether we're alone, in secret, or whether with our family, at home, or whether with our friends, on the beach, right? It's not just this random, informal offering up of a silent or spoken prayer. Like I might be drinking my coffee, and a thought comes to my mind, and I, and I pray a little to God. You know, I, I say something to the Lord. Or I'm, I'm just walking through the day, and taking a walk, and, and, I, and I just utter a prayer to God. Like Nehemiah, when the king asked him, why is your face so sad? And Nehemiah offered up a really fast prayer to God, and then answered the question. So... So it's this, this private external worship, that is an act of worship. Whenever we pray, there is, there is worship. But it's more than this. What does Jesus speak of? Going into your inner room and closing the door and praying, to pray. What did Peter do? He looked for a specific place on the rooftop, away from everyone down in the house, likely at a specific time, the sixth hour, which would be noon, which the especially faithful, would pray three times a day, like Daniel when he prayed three times a day. Cornelius was praying at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. The disciples on the beach, what did they do when they prayed? They knelt down on the beach. Paul says, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, that's not a rule we all have to lift up our hands, but it is a recognition that in that culture they had posture that accompanied their prayer. And so throughout the Bible, you'll see people kneeling, you'll see people looking to heaven, you'll see people raising their hands to pray. What did Jesus do? Jesus regularly sought out times and set aside times to pray alone. The, the assumption in all these cases is that even these private times for external worship, and this is where I think maybe we can be convicted, we might set aside times to read our Bibles or to check off our chapter list or whatever, but we're talking about here set times for private worship. Worship. Family worship. Set aside times. And the assumption in all these cases is that even these private times for external worship were treated, what's the word there? Differently, right? Differently from other times or than other times. In other words, let's be very practical. It seems safe to assume that Jesus went away to pray, not to pray while eating. In other words, those are two different activities. There's the activity of eating, and there's the activity of worshiping. Now, this is not about legalism. We're looking at a principle here. So, if I'm chewing my food, can I not offer a prayer to God? Of course that's not the case. But, but what we're saying is that when Jesus said, I'm going off onto the mountain to pray, right? He went to pray. It seems safe to say that Cornelius, when he was engaged in the activity of praying at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. See, these people were devout people. It says Cornelius was devout. Um, we have a casualness to everything, which is inappropriate and not honoring to God. And so we, we approach it, oh, it's the hour of prayer. It's the ninth hour. Let me get my glass of wine. 
They didn't have coffee then. Right? Well, I don't know. Maybe they did. But for them, maybe he grabbed his wine and he said, I, I want to enjoy this glass of wine while I'm engaging my hour of prayer. No, I can, I can be, you know, the Bible doesn't say Cornelius went and he did not bring any wine. But the reality is this picture of the approach of, of, to a time set apart from other times. For what? For worship. The disciples who, the disciple who goes into his inner room and closes his door, why does he close his door and go into his inner room? Well, so that he doesn't get praise from men. But we also assume so he avoids the legitimate distractions of the world. In the Bible, prayer can be accompanied by fasting. You hear about prayer and fasting, right? Now, the reason you fasted when you were praying, you would, what, what that means is you skipped meals. And why do you skip meals? So you can keep on praying. Not only so you can keep on praying, but, but so that by denying that normal time to eat, you, you demonstrate to God how serious you are about laying hold upon him. That you're serious in this worship. That you're serious in this prayer. So therefore, when mealtimes are not skipped, in other words, you're not technically fasting, we may assume that the worship, nevertheless, ends when the meal begins. The hour of prayer comes after mealtime. Not during mealtime. That's ridiculous. Even when we're not fasting, shouldn't private worship or prayer be a time in your handout set apart? A time not for the satisfying of our fleshly appetites. God-given fleshly appetites. But devoted exclusively to the pursuit of God. So, when I talk about coffee during worship, you know, at times we could say, well, there's, there's, there's medicinal needs. I don't, I'm, I'm, for whatever, for whatever happens. But when I bring things up like that, that is not, I don't care, I don't care. But I do, I do ask that what I mean by this is that we, we begin to let our activities, we ask about the appropriateness of the activities in and of themselves. It's not a judgment of hearts. As we're going to see later, I'm going to talk about a title such as Pastor of Worship Arts. Does that mean that if a church has a pastor of worship arts, it's a bad church? No. Is the title appropriate? Would we have that title here? No. And we'll see why. Do, do, I, do, I, choose, um, do I choose to bring my coffee up here and, and enjoy it while I'm preaching? No. If, if I saw a pastor do that, do I know that that pastor's got a wicked, sinful heart? No. We, we, but, but, but that doesn't mean, see, this is what we do. We say, oh, I can't judge the heart. It's, does the Bible say I can't drink coffee while I'm preaching? It does not say that. And so you say, well, if I say I don't believe I should do that, I don't believe that's in accordance with a biblical theology of worship. And so what happens is we get all hung up on, well, that's legalism. Well, it could be. It could be. But it may not be. Likely, it may be license. Could be. May not be. But brothers and sisters, this is the activity we're called to as Christians, is to evaluate activities in the light of our theology. All activities. Drinking coffee while I'm preaching. I need to evaluate that activity in light of my theology. This is all of life. Right? 
That's the beauty of Christianity. God did not need to give us a rule for every single possible circumstance that we could face. He gave us a full, robust theology and then the spirit to guide and then love to those who don't come to the same place. And and sometimes we think, if I come to this place, I can't love anyone else if they don't with me. Or we think, if you came to that place, you can't be loving everyone else who didn't come to where you are. Right? So we do that too. This is where we need God's, God's help because we are such flawed, sinful people, aren't we? We can take any good thing and go off in a bad direction. So, the general principle to be observed, the general principle to be observed is that eating and drinking and worship and prayer are two different activities with times appropriate to each. This is holy time. So even in our private homes, there ought to be a place for the distinction between the common and the holy. Uh, it's, it's, it's popular now uh, to say, and there's, a, there's a, a legitimate place for this, but I, I've seen things, um, every moment holy. That's a phrase. Um, and in, in one sense, as I think as they're defining it, I could agree. But you, you miss the point of holiness sometimes when you say that. Because holy means set apart. So if every moment is holy, it's set apart from what? External worship may be engaged in at any number of different places or times, but there is a special sense. Now we take it. Now you, all are, you see now that we have private external worship with our time set apart. Set apart not for eating and drinking, but for worship and prayer. But there is a special sense in which you take that, that same external worship that's, a, that's that it's associated now especially with those times when God's people are gathered together here expressly for the observance of God's instituted ordinances. The confession puts it like this, more solemnly in the public assemblies. So if I set aside a time as holy at home for worship and prayer, how much more holy is this? When the stones of the temple are gathered together, the temple is visibly here. This external worship in the context of this gathered assembly can be called external temple worship. That goes to a theology right there. Temple worship. Because it is the more solemn worship that happens at the temple, or Paul uses the expression, in church. Some people like to say, church is everywhere. Church is all the time. The church never stops existing. That's like egalitarianism. Everything's common. But no, Paul says, no, this is what you should do in church. This is what you should not do in church. So the church is uniquely here. And generally, on a specific day, the Lord's day. We could say then that this worship, brothers and sisters, this worship is doubly holy. Not only is it external worship, Not internal, that's not what we're talking about. It is, but it's more than that. It's external. It is external temple worship. And so what we're going to see, as we should be able to see already, but we'll see in the coming weeks, that this time must be treated differently than all other times. Not, Not simply by virtue of the day of the week when we observe this worship, although the fact that we observe it uniquely on this day is an indicator that it's special. Not simply by the context in which this worship happens, but by virtue of what worship is. So what is? What is external worship? 
To answer that question, we're going to go back now this morning. To the beginnings of post-fall worship, we're going to look at this morning primeval worship. That means, that means the period between the fall of man and God beginning to work through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So next week, we're going to look at patriarchal worship. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This week, primeval, which will be Seth, Abel, Cain, Noah. The earliest, the earliest worship. Do you want to know what this is? Well, we won't figure it out entirely until the end of this series, but we're going to start. The earliest worship is described in terms of building an altar, bringing an offering, and then in connection with these offerings on the altar, calling, calling upon the name of Yahweh, of the Lord. Now again, I I think we're all, forgive me, I I mean, I feel lazy sometimes. Whenever I sit and listen, I I feel lazy. So our lazy approach to that is to say, okay, now what's he going to say about that? But when I thought about it, I was like, no. Are you already doing the work? Are you already working at developing your theology of worship? There's a lot to think about right there. As we begin this work, we read in Genesis chapter 4 about Cain and Abel. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the first things of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, there's no altar that you saw there, is there? Was, was, Was there an altar, do you think? Well, an altar is assumed by the sacrificial language. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that they brought their sacrifices. It's impossible to conceive of a sacrifice apart from an altar. The language is just so linked. Not only that, but it says offering, it says firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. That's all sacrificial language, which is altar. The other reason we know there's an altar there is because they brought these things to the Lord. Did God have a house that he lived in? Right? Or did he walk around and he said, I'll meet you here at this time of the day? And so then when they brought these food, this food to the Lord, did they bring it to him and then they watched Yahweh eat their food? No, when they brought to the Lord, that is to say, they brought it and offered it to him on the altar. That's the language associated with altar. And finally, in the, who's writing this Genesis? Moses is. Who's he writing it to? Israelites. And what do they all know about bringing offerings? You do it on an altar. So it's like you didn't even need to say that there was an altar. Now, there's no explicit mention of calling on the name of the Lord either. But as we're about to see, whenever you offer offerings on an altar, The whole point is calling on the name of Yahweh. So the first explicit reference to an altar. There's an altar in Genesis 4. Do you realize how quick that that is? How quick they got around to building altars? (laughs) That's fast. Why why did they get to it so fast? Genesis 8 says, Noah built an altar to the Lord. And offered burnt offerings on the altar. The first explicit reference to calling upon the name of the Lord is in Genesis chapter 4. Verse 26. To Seth, to him also, this is after Cain kills Abel. Then Adam and Eve have another son, name him Seth. He had a son, called his name Enosh. And then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that before Seth, or even before he had his son, Enosh, that Abel and uh, that Adam and Abel and Seth, they never called on the name of the Lord until now. The point is this, and this is really important, and I'm going to draw this together in a moment. The point is that it was the, in the line of Seth, not the line of Cain, because we just got finished with the line of Cain, which ends in murder and polygamy and disaster. 
And now, after going there, Moses goes back to Seth. And his point is that it's not the line of Cain, that was a failure, but it's in the line of Seth, in which the true worshipers of God are preserved. It's in the line of Seth, not Cain, that we find, we find men engaging in this very special, very unique activity of calling on the name of the Lord. What is that calling upon the name of the Lord? Calling upon. Well, at one level, it's just a synonym for prayer. whether they're prayers of petition or prayers of thanksgiving or any other kind of prayer. So when you, I want you to think about that word, call, that phrase, calling upon the name of the Lord. That is a rich, rich expression. And it, it, it sums up that which the creature owes uniquely and exclusively to the Creator. Calling upon the name of the Lord, if you think of the word invoke, or the invocation, to invoke, is to call upon. And so this invoking the Lord's name, this this calling upon his name, is that in your handout, act. Act that expresses at the most basic level our posture before God and the way we are called to relate with him. So in particular, this is very important, to call upon or invoke the name of the Lord is in Scripture a technical or a formal expression for worship. So consider these passages. Psalm 79. Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you and upon the kingdoms which, which do not call upon your name. Moses and Aaron were among his priests and Samuel was among those who called on his name. Zephaniah. I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may what, what, is, what are they going to do? Call on the name of the Lord to serve him. That's the word for worship we saw last week. Serve him shoulder to shoulder from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. My worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. Paul in the New Testament began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues and saying he is the son of God. And all those hearing Paul continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And finally, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place in every, and I think when he says in every place, the, 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 there's a picture there of who in every gathering, wherever the church gathers, what are they doing in the, all these church gatherings? Wherever in every place they call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are we doing here? What are we to be doing? Calling on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we're told that in the days of Seth, men began to call upon the name of the Lord, what we have here is a description of external worship. That is not just a reference to Christians in general and everything they do, eating and drinking and everything else. It's it's a reference to these acts of worship that the creature owes to God. It's connected especially with that external worship that was associated with the offerings on the altar. 
And so we see that in First Samuel and then in Isaiah, and I'm going to not, not read those now. I don't think it's essential to the, to the point, but they're there in your handout. So I want to ask you, what is external worship? Uh, it is to call upon the name of the Lord. In this case, it is to call upon the name of the Lord in connection with offerings on an altar. How will that inform your theology of worship? Because you're working to make your own theology of worship, right? How will that inform your theology of worship? What will that mean for how we should worship? Because if our theology does not impact our how, then our theology is worthless. So, it must impact how. Now, it's important for us to ask the question, where did this worship come from? Who invented it? Did God say, here I am, what are you going to do? And we say, God, we're going to worship you, this is how we're going to do it, God. Who, with whom did worship originate? Well, insofar as worship is just prayer, man knew what that worship was from the beginning because God hardwired it into him. God made man in his own image. And so if, if worship is just, is just prayer, and it is, then, then man knew it because God put it in his heart that it was what he owed to God. So the London Baptist Confession says, prayer with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship is by God required of all men. So in other words, every unbeliever knows because God hardwired this into him that he is obligated to worship God, to pray to him. Every unbeliever knows he is obligated to pray to God and to call upon his name. This is hardwired into us. But then the fall happened. We've got the fall. And after the fall, men, because of sin, had to be taught how to worship God acceptably. Because prior to the fall, I could come to God as a perfect human being and not worry about stuff. I was a creature. I had to come as a creature to the Creator, but not as a sinful creature to, a holy, to the Holy Creator. Not like that. So now we ask, was it Adam who, in the sincerity of his heart, invented the idea of an altar? Was it Adam who invented the idea of bringing gifts and offerings to God? Now, we don't know what Adam did before the fall. Did he, did he still have a special time when he brought gifts and offerings to God? I don't, we don't get that impression from a theology of an altar in the Old Testament. But the ultimate question I have to ask you is this. Is it you who decides how you will approach God? Is it we who decide how we will approach him in worship? I just want to get, say this as a big picture. It wasn't Adam who initiated relationship with God after the fall. It wasn't, you know, Adam sinned and God said, what did you do, Adam? And, found, and so he, he kicks Adam out of the garden and then God's sitting there waiting, waiting for, well, what's Adam going to do next? Is Adam going to approach me anymore? Is he going to, is he going to try for relationship? No, it was a God who graciously initiated relationship with sinful men after the fall. And he did that by revealing to them, in your handout, the way to approach him. This is is far-reaching. And he did that by assuring them that he would be pleased with the offerings they brought in accordance with 
his will. How do we know this? Well, we know this because in all true worship, God is always the initiator and revealer. In other words, Adam and Eve didn't say, well, we've been kicked out of the garden, we've sinned, we now are subject to death, and we are sinful human beings, but God, we still think we've got something to bring to you. We still think you'll be pleased with the stuff we bring. And so we're going to make an altar and we're going to do this. Think about it like this. It's God himself who kicked them out of the garden because they sinned. But then God kicks them out and then God still wants relationship with them. So if we were to imagine that God kicks them out and says, oh, but I, would, I still desire relationship with you. But God did not instruct Adam and Eve in the way now to approach him after the fall and live in relationship with him after this change brought about by the fall is incompatible with our biblical doctrine of God, our theology of God. So in the Bible, whenever sinful men invent their own ways and means and methods of approaching the holy God... That is the height, the the pinnacle of sinful presumption. It treats God as if he were beholden to us, because of course God will be happy with whatever way I approach him, with whatever gifts I bring to him, with however I choose to worship. Because after all, it's worship. And shouldn't God be happy with worship? This is, the, this, is, this is the theology of worship that exposes so much of what goes under the name of worship today. Because we assume, we assume that, of course, God's happy with my worship because it's worship. That's false. That's dangerous. So we read in Leviticus 10 as one Example of this, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And God said, I will be treated as holy. Jeremiah chapter 30, God says, I will bring the leader of Israel, near. And then he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself, in himself, according to his own agenda, in his own way, to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. When we read later in Exodus about the Lord's instructions for building an altar, what we have to realize is that God was formalizing, in other words, something he had already revealed hundreds and thousands of years earlier. God was now saying, now I'm going to put it in a covenant and formalize it. So when he said in Exodus 20, 24, when he says this, you can imagine that he said something very similar to this uh, to Adam. You shall make an altar of earth for me. And you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. How dare, how dare Cain or Abel presume that the creator of the universe would be pleased to accept their meager gifts. Not just meager, measly who were not only mere creatures, but now sinful creatures, who a moment ago were hiding. We did not, brothers and sisters, invent worship, though we still make constant efforts to invent worship today. God must reveal his worship to us. We see that now finally in the fact that the altar itself was a divinely ordained type that is fulfilled in Christ. In other words, Adam didn't invent an altar 
And then God said, wow, that altar was a really good idea. I'm going to make that altar a type of my son, Jesus Christ, when he comes into the world. No, God revealed the altar, and he revealed the altar as a type that he intended to point forward to Jesus. So we read in Hebrews 13, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Beautiful. So, just as Christianity is a revealed religion, did any of us figure out Christianity on our own? Could we have? It had to be revealed. So also worship, for it to be acceptable to God, must be revealed to us and made known to us by God. This is, I don't, I, I, and I hope you don't think, well, where is he going with this? I don't, don't even care where I'm going with this. <laughs> I'm not even, I don't have any agenda right now. I'm just saying, this is fundamental. You take this. Go, go wherever. Let this be your theology of worship. We, this is one of those fundamental biblical truths that needs to permeate all our thinking and undergird our whole theology of worship. We could, we could say this. External worship in your handout is not an arena for human creativity. Ah, but we say, I want to be creative. No, God says, stop with your creativity. External worship is not an area for human inventiveness. It is not a place for individualistic or communal self-expression. External worship is in your handout uniquely and exclusively the domain of God. And must therefore always be engaged in in the way he has prescribed. We see this principle illustrated in the fact that God would not allow his people... Think about this. God said, when you build an altar of stones... Don't you dare get any of your tools out. I don't want any of your creativity. I mean, I made some of you to be very creative. But I want nothing to do with your creativity. Because the moment you touch one of the stones on my altar with one of your tools, to embellish it, to design it, you've just profaned the altar. That's all your creativity gets you is profaning worship. That's what, Jesus, that's what God says. Now that's the principle. Now on the other hand, you might say, well, what about all the designs in the tabernacle? Exactly. Right? Whenever, when God's people did build a tabernacle or a temple with an altar, They were only to build according to the very detailed pattern that who gave to them? God gave to them. That's the tabernacle, that's the temple, Solomon's temple, and that's the picture of the future um, temple in Ezekiel. Now, let's point out, the point is not we can't build a church building or even accept members into the body unless God gives us a blueprint a blueprint or a direct revelation the point is that we let these realities inform our our what of worship you know what it is now right our theology of worship and brothers and sisters if this is the only thing i mean i hope not but this is one thing that could come from this is that christians today we've not we're not being taught in our churches to have a theology of anything But that's what the whole Bible is. 
And this is, this is how we learn to live the Christian life. So, we read in Genesis 4. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the first things of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Now, if you read the passage, the emphasis is carefully describes what the offerings were they brought. It doesn't say Cain brought his offering and Abel brought his offering, but God only had regard for the one and not the other. It goes into detail about what the offerings were. So the emphasis is on the offerings themselves. Fruit of the ground, firstlings of his flock, and of their fat portions. Look at that language. I mean, that's detailed. Later on, when Moses comes... God says, hey, I require the firstborn of the flock and their fat portions, but also he required the first fruits of the ground. So when God gave those instructions at Sinai, what was he doing? He was taking things he had previously revealed as early as Cain and Abel, and he was formalizing it now in a covenant. But he told everyone that long a time ago. And so it wasn't just the heart that made Cain's sacrifice bad. In other words, it's not just that Cain had a bad heart, but he had a bad sacrifice. The bad sacrifice proved his bad heart. So the author of Hebrews says, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. Doesn't say testifying about his heart, although that was certainly a problem. He testified about his gifts. In other words, by faith, Abel obeyed and brought the sacrifice and the worship God had prescribed. Cain wanted to worship God, maybe sincerely, he thought. But nevertheless, in his own way. Noah, when he went out from the ark, Noah, flood is over. Ground is dry, Noah goes out of the ark, and what does he do? He builds an altar, takes some of every what animal? Clean animal. Every clean bird. And offered burnt offerings on the altar. How did Noah know what were the clean animals and what were the unclean animals? Well, he lived way before God spoke through Moses in Leviticus 11 about all the clean and unclean animals. So Noah didn't get it by reading Moses. God must have already revealed to Noah and those before him what were the animals that were acceptable on his altar. Which kinds? I said that just as Christianity is a revealed religion, so worship to be acceptable to God must be revealed and made known to us by God. The London Baptist Confession puts it like this. Prayer with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship, is by God required of all men. But, that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Holy Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, Love and perseverance. What's, what, what's natural worship? Natural worship is that which is known even to every unbeliever as a binding obligation by the law of his what? By the law of his creation. But, but natural worship is also a worship that no man performs by reason of the fall. So there's such a thing as natural worship. It's what everyone knows they ought to do, but it's also the worship no one does. You can read the passages there. What is religious worship, brothers and sisters? What is religious worship? It is that which can be known only 
by special redemptive revelation. Does this not does this not humble us to the ground? Only a special revelation from God, accompanied by the working of his spirit, can make us willing to call upon his name and show us how to call upon his name in accordance with his will and so in a manner acceptable to him. In no other activity, in no other activity in the whole scope and sphere of life, are we more wholly dependent upon God than we are in worship. And while we would not say this the other way around, and while many churches, and and I'm putting us there with it, would not say this the other way around, the way we subtly think, and the way we subtly act, And the way we worship often reveals that we tend to believe that worship is the one place where we're a little less dependent on God. That God is maybe a little dependent on us. I can never, we can never emphasize too strongly that external worship is not an arena for our creativity. It is not a place of freedom in that, in that human sense, of inventiveness. It's not a place for individualistic self-expression, which is why I am uncomfortable with a title like Pastor of Worship Arts or even worship pastor. Now, I I should hope I would say that here, because that's why we're going to choose, we have to choose, and we don't have to choose, but we're we're not going to have ever, we're not going to give Greg the title pastor of worship arts, right? We're not going to call him worship pastor. We're not going to call anyone that, ever, I pray, in this church. And the reason is because of a biblical theology of worship. Now, what happened? As soon as we all saw that, we started thinking, do I know a church that has someone who's called pastor of worship arts? Don't, don't do that. That's, that's not the point. And, and, and anyway, that, I, I just want to help us see that so often people avoid having convictions because they're convinced if they have that conviction it will and must result in legalistic judgmentalism of others. In the same way people excuse themselves and and then judge others for their convictions because they assume that if you have that conviction you must be judging me or judging others who don't have that conviction. And so, we go into this world where none of us have convictions beyond what we can find a proof text for. None of us have convictions about a theology of clothes. None of us have convictions about a theology of worship. I'm saying none of us, I'm just a generalization, and it's probably false, I hope. But this is the problem. So we, we, don't, we don't have convictions beyond what we can get from a proof text. We, we, we don't have convictions that flow uniquely from a theology of something. Because we're afraid if I have a conviction that flows from a theology and not from a proof text, it must necessarily be legalism and judgmentalism. And, and granted, our hearts, our hearts are wicked. On the one hand, I don't want those convictions, so that's a convenient way out. 
I don't, I don't want a conviction about, I don't want convictions about clothes. I don't want convictions about worship. I just want to do what I'm sincerely doing. I'm sincere. I love God. Everything's all right. That's unbiblical. On the other hand, I have these convictions. And yes, because of the wickedness and sinfulness of our hearts, we can begin to sit in judgment upon others and upon their hearts. Now, do we need to make informed decisions? If I'm choosing a church and I see they have a pastor of worship arts, um, I'm not automatically going to discount that church. But it is going to be a red flag for me. And I would suggest that usually that red flag is going to prove to be a well-founded red flag. In other words, without in any way judging hearts, these are titles, I believe, that are not fitting. Maybe I could say it that way, with a truly biblical theology of worship. That's a title. Let me ask, and we'll come back to these things later. What about, uh, uh, I'm going to use this for, I don't know why I use this. And again, this is not the judgment of things. What about an interpretive dance? Or a mime? Maybe you have a mime. Uh, Performed to a hymn. Holy, holy, holy. You know, we can say, well, I don't see chapter and verse that says he can't do that. Or we can say, wait a minute. Let me understand my my theology of worship. Is a Christian music concert choral, instrumental, solo, group? Is that opposed to a biblical theology of external worship? I'm inviting you now, okay? And we're going to explore these things further as we develop our theology of worship. I'll ask you this. Are the arts sinful? Pastor of worship arts. Are the the arts sinful? Can we worship God in our arts? What, What is your art? Can you worship God in your art? Well, you ought to. You ought to at all times. Internal worship. But we're talking about the, not the common, but the holy. And we're talking about not just the holy, but the doubly holy. So are the arts sinful? Not at all. They are gifts from God to be pursued always to the honor and glory of God. The question, though, that we delight to ask and answer. And I use the word delight purposely because I love to ask and answer this question. At least seek to answer it. How do these things fit with a truly biblical theology of external worship? So what have we learned this morning? External worship is very simply, so far, to call upon and invoke the name of the Lord. Secondly, this external worship, particularly external temple worship, is uniquely and exclusively the domain of God and must therefore always be engaged in according to his will in the way that he has prescribed. And so here is an important reminder to us that we can never be given too often. It is not God who needs our worship, but we who need God to reveal himself and to reveal his worship to us. May that fundamental biblical truth permeate all our thinking so that it undergirds entirely our whole theology of worship.
May this fundamental biblical truth rid us of all presumption. Maybe even the presumption that we were previously unaware of or didn't know we had, but now we see, wow, I have been presumptuous. Maybe we see a bit of that in us. And may it fill us with a glad humility and dependence. Dependence. As we approach this time, each and every Sunday morning. How will this change? How will this transform your approach to this time, to the glory of God and our joy? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you, that you strengthen us in, in the theology of your word, which is so rich, which is so deep, which is so beautiful, and in, at, a, at a certain level, which is also so simple. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sufficient, wholly sufficient, for all things that are necessary for life and godliness and for your glory. Lord, may we be a people at Living Word and wherever your people assemble in every place where they call on your name. May we be a people who truly, earnestly, diligently seek to ground all that we do in a theology of everything. And as we do this, Lord, um, may we stand in wonder and awe at how it reveals you to us all the more clearly, all the more fully, and how we are sanctified and fitted more and more to be with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.